Because it's tradition. We've started every single show that way. I'm not, I'm just not I'm not willing to give it up. I, I, we have too much to do. There are just too many cycles this week. This, I know. This is insane. I know there's you know a lot we have to talk about. We this many. You just, no, 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 no. And but, I don't care if it's tradition. So is witch burning. We have to have a cold open for the show. We have to have something that we do before we start. I mean, that's that's the way we've started every show. It's so gimmicky. I know it's gimmicky, but I like it. And it's, it's like, we've done it every time. I don't understand we're, why we're going to ditch re- it now. We're a review show, not Rowan and Martin's laughing. I, but what if I want to be laughing? I'm just saying, I know we have a lot of titles, we shouldn't waste time. What if I want to be Goldie but, Horn? That's not happening either. <sighs> okay, okay. All right, look, Bird on a Wire. The point is, every show has started that way. I like doing it. I don't care that we have that many titles. I don't think we should waste time arguing about it. I think we should just do a cold open. Okay, how's about this? All Instead right. of a cold open, yeah. I open a cold one for you. Mmm, beer. It's time to hit play on another flippin', trippin', layer skippin' episode of Digital Noise here on OneOfUs.net. This is the weekly review show that you should always play before you pay for DVDs and Blu-rays. I am your host, Brian Salisbury, and I'm joined by my brother from another dimensional mother... Mr. Richard Whitaker. Morning. Hello, Mr. Beats United. That I don't was, know. That was very impressive. We got Beat Street going on over I here for some the... reason. <laughs> you, you've you just watched the entire Step Up franchise too many I times. I may have. <laughs> when that box set comes out, if they oh. don't get you to do a special like critics commentary, like there, there will be a general outcry. I will, I will literally sit there and explain the entire overarching continuity that makes up the Step Up universe. Not just one film, but how it relates to the overall Step Up verse in its entirety well that and you know just going ooh, brianna evergan's pretty that'll be about like 20 minutes and of course shawnee vince of course anyway i want to remind you that this show quality as it obviously is is available on itunes as well as on stitcher you can also follow the show on twitter at digi noisecast that's d-i-g-i noisecast you can also follow the website on twitter at one of us net and like the website on facebook facebook.com slash you guessed it one of us net hey if you're not already a subscriber you should really 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 think about doing that uh we just put up a brand new commentary for subscribers uh this week and starting, I believe, next week, we have a very special... Something big is coming that I can't I can't say what it is right now. But let's just say, when it hits, you're all going to be very happy that you're subscribers. And if you're not a subscriber, you're going to be like, well, fuck, I need to become a subscriber. So get on that. Also, close your eyes because you don't want any getting in there. You don't want any... <laughs> Yes, thank you. Something big is coming. I obviously mean cock. Um, (laughs) We started off the show the best possible way. Exactly in the gutter in which we shall finish. Yes. Yes. And um, we don't have any questions from the letterbox this week because we have a metric fuck ton of titles. Oh, this is ridiculous. This is the ridiculous week. Sorry, folks. Yeah, so so many titles. In fact, that we're bringing back well, a forgotten how's... segment of the show. Ooh, we are. We are, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But how's about this? All right, okay, folks. Because we're not going to have time to uh, do this on the on the show, we're not going to mm-hmm. have time to answer your questions. Uh Send them in on Facebook anyway, okay, and we'll answer them on Facebook because Ooh, you know, I, th- I think you can ask I, me anything. I think, please don't. 
Please don't ask me anything. Well, like, ask us the normal questions you would would ask us for digital. Earth is not on the table, folks. Um, yeah, yeah, no, we'll do that. I mean, that that's, well, that's all part of the service. That's what I I'll think do. That's fair. That's that's what I'll do. I'll put up something on Facebook right after we're done recording here, and you can just go there and ask us your questions, and Richard or I or both will will answer them. Or evade them. Or evade them or completely. Or block you. Or block you. There's a lot of options. There's a lot of drop-down options. But anyway, I guess that means we should just dive right into... The reviews! And I want to remind you yet again that everything we talk about is going to have its own Amazon link here on the page on oneofus.net. So just scroll down there, click on that link, get to Amazon. Even if you don't buy that thing, just by getting to Amazon... Through that link, anything you buy benefits the site. Thank you for doing that. Hey! And we're going to start this week with Annabelle. Oh, do we? Annabelle. Do you remember that first five-minute pre-title sequence in uh, The Conjuring? Conjuring? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, this is that stretched over 98 minutes for no good reason whatsoever. No, no, no good reason. I absolutely agree with that. Although, when you look at the way The Conjuring is structured... Why else is that there? It it is actually extremely awkwardly positioned. I was thinking that when it's like when I when I watched the country, I was like, "This is a rather good, you know, terse, well little, well directed little shocker." And there's all this stuff with the Warrens' house that I don't care about. I don't care mm-hmm. about the creepy doll. Why are they setting this nonsense up? Well, now we know. Here's what I would argue: is that it's The Conjuring is a great horror film preceded by a decent horror short. Yes. And this movie is the extended version of that short. And for the most part, it is not good. No. That being said, I will say this for Annabelle. It's got some what I consider to be effectively creepy imagery in it. Yes. And that was more than I was expecting. Yeah. It it does devolve into jump scares uh, eventually, as, as I believe that it would. But there's some imagery that's, you know, static and things kind of standing in the distance and just really off-putting and uh, yeah even some of the jump scares i thought were were creative i mean the um the one where you know one person goes through the 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 swinging double door and then another person comes out of it and like i mean if nothing else you got to appreciate the editing on that shot yeah and the basic plot here is uh the origin story of annabelle the creepy doll um that oh it's it's the 1950s slash 60s because somebody doesn't seem to get some of their set design issues down right well they they knew what they wanted from set design but they forgot when helter skelter happened yes that is the (laughs) the basic problem that uh this nice couple who are about to have a baby their next door neighbors get killed by a satanic cult who then come in and stab the woman so she doesn't lose the baby but she's on bed rest and her husband has bought her this horrible doll the original annabelle which is oh doll collectors are weird people say action figure collectors are weird no No, no, doll collectors are weird no 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 we collect action figures collectors will collect things from horror movies that are supposed to be creepy doll collectors collect things that are supposed to be sweet and cute but are fucking creepy yeah and that's what i loved i expected to see like a really pretty very like you know kind of adorable annabelle doll that slowly becomes the hideous looking thing from the beginning of the conjuring nope looked like that when they bought it yeah it looked it looked exactly that fucked up when they bought it and she's like oh it's the one i wanted i'm like why why, would why you did do you that want to that why what are you doing you're inviting evil into your house so anyway the doll gets blood splattered on it and suddenly becomes demonically possessed but the really clever thing that they keep up all the way through this is they do what they did in the first one which is the doll doesn't move the doll right. is just inherently creepy and is in the wrong place, and you don't see the mechanic. You do finally, and that's actually almost that's actually not badly handled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you're making an immobile object. 
actually kind of creepy, which, again, it actually works. The problem with this film is that you take all the parts apart and, yeah, there's lots of good elements to it that are actually kind of effective and, you know, timely and blah, blah, blah. But when it comes together, you're like, well, okay, I'm wandering from one minor scare to the next and, oh, no, nobody's going to believe the mother and she's going to start undergoing a mental collapse and then, you know... Her friend who happens to run a spooky bookstore, who is actually not spooky at all, but just the bookstore's like, uh, comes to the rescue. But the individual scenes are okay, but there's nothing really there. You know, this is a sequel that is made, or prequel rather, that is made because they decided when they made the first one they were going to make this. It's pretty clear. The Conjuring was massively successful. It is really good. You know, it's a legitimately good little horror film. Um, This is, it's there. It's, this is mm-hmm. a, a, a lower end of the scale Bloomhouse release. I, you know, nobody's going to be talking about this in 10 years. If they're hoping this launches the Annabelle franchise, I don't think it does. I will say it is better than the most recent Blumhouse release I just watched, The Boy Next Door with Jennifer Lopez. Sorry, I got to hate on that movie one more time. Um, <laughs> if you think about Annabelle in terms of going to a build a doll work, workshop, and this is kind of where Richard and I agree on this, the individual limbs, fine. There's nothing wrong with them. But when you assemble them, what you get is not necessarily a Victorian girl doll as much as it's one of the abominations from Sid's workshop in Toy Story. Mm, yeah. Like that's it's like this doesn't really work. This doesn't look like the thing that you thought it would look like. And you know, and the ending is so ridiculous. It is just the most idiotic like <laughs> like it it takes the concept of like all, you know, like, black people always die in horror films and pushes it to the extreme. Yeah. Like, but, but they didn't have to. No. Like, come on, this is ridiculous. And, yeah, I mean, some minor scares aside, I think, overall, it just, it really doesn't work. It doesn't come together well. There's lots of ways they could have actually done this more effectively. I mean, a really smart way for them to have played this is that you, you're you never quite sure whether there's actually anything supernatural or not happening or it's just the mother having a, a nervous breakdown. And you mm-hmm. could have done that much yeah. more effectively and much more interestingly. Instead, at one point, you go, well, there's the demon. Yep, there it is. Yeah, it's, that's, it's... that's not particularly interesting. There's a much better film lurking in here somewhere. Um, and it's just not this one, sadly. I I think Annabelle, as far as a movie, was benefited by the fact that it came out the same year as shit like Ouija. So it's like... (laughs) Not hard to look good. It's not not really hard to raise above the standard set by a movie like Ouija. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. But I mean, uh, you know, and another thing they sent around, I remember when the the movie was coming out, they sent around, or maybe it was The Conjuring 2, they sent around a swag for critics, the Annabelle doll, and as soon as I got it, I gave that fucking thing away on the website. I was <laughs> like, like, no, no, no I don't no. want this shit anywhere near my home. It's a great piece of design. It, it, it yeah, is. It, it is. It, it absolutely. It's a great It's something prop. that will actually survive extremely well, I think, in the in the annals of horror. <laughs> annals. Nah, you um, But, you know, no, this is not a... It's it's subpar. It's, it's a little bit disappointing. I didn't feel there was anything that made this something they needed to make, other than the fact that the Warrens... Uh, had been paid for the rights for it. That's my, that's my absolute presumption. And they didn't have a, another script lined up. I, I really feel that they're trying to build a big franchise that it's not going to happen. Yeah. And plus, I mean, you see how much directing is important uh, with stuff like this because, uh, you know, you have James Wan directing the Conjuring movies 
And for Annabelle, you have the guy that directed Butterfly Effect 2 and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Ooh. Yeah. High quality. Yeah. Well, what I will say, this is, by that, by that standard, the best thing he's made. <laughs> there you go. Again, not hard to look at. Not, not, not a high bar to fall off. No. This comes with some special features. Uh, deleted scenes, a few featurettes, one called The Curse of Annabelle, Bloody Tears of Possession, Doll of the Demon in a Demonic Process. Really scary sounding EPK, but yeah. still EPK. <laughs> Sorry. Well, the funny thing is, because if anybody doesn't know this uh the uh, annabelle is actually based on a real alleged case of a possessed doll but uh, uh but it doesn't look like that it's what actually, does it look like it's a raggedy ann yeah. which are creepy enough in their own right which is true which is but very I'm, true. I'm sure the raggedy ann corporation was like nope nope not happening <laughs> which means the most authentic annabelle movie so far is that one two second scene in the frighteners where one of the ghosts makes a raggedy hand doll like grab What's her name's leg? Actually, it also, if you go back now and watch E.T., and the point where E.T. Push, uh, hides behind all the cuddly toys and there's a Raggedy, do- Raggedy Ann doll in there and push it, pushes out, the moment where the Raggedy Ann doll starts moving by itself because you can't see E.T., that's now officially much creepier. <laughs> that's deeply disturbing. Well, they're talking about disturbing horror dolls just for a second. I saw the creepiest thing uh, possibly ever. What's that? Um... You know the uh, the Japanese bishoju um, figures, which are basically sexy hentai versions of, of uh, film characters and comics characters. Okay, this is a thing I've just learned about the, from you. Yeah, um, the creepiest one is a uh, sexy female Jason Voorhees. Uh, no, uh, I'm just, I'm even worse, say no. even worse, <laughs> sexy female Freddy Krueger. At so many levels, no. Mm, no. No, 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 no. Sexy no. Freddy Krueger is why he was set on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Kill it with fire. Kill it with fire right now. <laughs> we're going we're to move on to uh, something much better. Uh, and that is the box trolls, which is uh, the... Fish. Anim- fi- eggs. 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 Fish. 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 Eggs. Oil. Fish oil. Hey! Eggs! Um, so... <laughs> This yeah. will all make sense if you, if you've seen it or when you see it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is the latest film, and correct me if I'm wrong, Richard, from the folks who did Paranorman. Paranorman and um, Coraline. Coraline as well. I the good ab- folks at Leica Studios. Yes, yeah. I absolutely loved Paranorman. That was my favorite animated film of that year. And I will say, I still, after seeing the box trolls, think that... The Lego Movie is my number one this year, but this is a really close it's second. So close. This is really, really good, and it has that beautiful sort of Mar- like the the neo marionation from you know like people like uh, oh my god I'm blanking on their names. Help me. No, no, no. The the guys who did like Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer and oh um yeah those guys. The American oh uh, Rankin Bass. <laughs> Rankin Bass. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like a neo version of Rankin Bass. This is, well, this is what Rankin Bass did taken to the the thousandth degree. Yes, this is the most unbelievably high quality stop motion animation that I think anybody's ever done. I think this is like a continually raise the bar. Yeah, and integrate uh, CG. Uh, so seamlessly into into what they do. I don't mm-hmm. think anybody is doing it quite as well as they are. Uh, the basic idea of the plot is that there is this um, odd little city. Uh, it, it, it has a European fairy tale feel to it. Yeah, it's called uh, Cheesebridge. Cheesebridge. Uh, where Which I thought was a real place in England, but it, you told uh, me it's is. not. It okay. should be. 
<laughs> we just don't tell foreigners about it. Oh, right on. We're, we're, uh, rank is distinguished by the colour of your hat, and the white hats are at the top, and the red hats are at the bottom. And one of the red hats uh, is... A, so it's an Orwellian society. Yes, is, a, is, his job is to find the box trolls, that are these hideous creatures that live under the city and come in the night and steal, you, and steal your babies. Um, although we quickly find out they're not. They're completely adorable. They are, yeah. and they're terrified of everything. They're and homeless they monsters. The, yeah, they're homeless monsters that live in boxes and then uh, hide under the city and are looking after this one small child who thinks that he's a box troll. Um, but is in the classic way of such fairy tales because there's a very, very kind of like Hans Christian Andersen feel to this. He discovers that there are these things on the surface called humans and you don't have to necessarily be afraid of them. And it's kind of a classic two different groups coming together. What distinguishes this is how wonderful the box trolls are. So well designed and so adorable. They are, yeah, you, you, they are kind of gross and gruesome and gooey and, and odd teeth sticking out at strange angles, but they are done with such heart and such charm, and they communicate by only talking to each other in kind of this weird, flippity-gibbet, nonsense language, but they refer to themselves by... Their name is whatever the box that they're wearing is. So there was a character called Fish, and there was one called Eggs, and another one called Shoes. And one called Fragile. That yes. was my favorite. There's a box troll named Fragile. Fragile. I thought that was funny. And it, this is unbelievable. In the Italian release, it's called Fragile. Fragile. Uh, this is unbelievably charming. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, it kind of has that gothic overtone. It's slightly less... Uh, kind of dark and morbid than I think they either did with Coraline, which I love, but I can see is a little bit too much for some smaller children. Mm-hmm. Or Paranorman, where the subject material, I think, is a little bit too much for some children. Yeah. Just because there's lots of ghosts around, they might and get freaked that- by ghosts. This, however, is across the board great family entertainment because you love the characters. It's still kind of big and like got that dark, scary edge to it, mm-hmm. but... You know, this wonderful sense of charm and innocence and the box trolls themselves are so adorable. Yeah, and and while the darkness is what I loved about Paranorman, it would not suit this movie. No. So it makes more sense to give the movie a dark edge without making it oppressively dark, and I feel like that's exactly what they did, and they did it so phenomenally well. And one of the things I didn't know until after the movie was over, I only recognized one voice mm-hmm. in the whole thing, and that voice was Jared Harris playing Lord Portly Rind, who's yeah. kind of the, the the main white hat, the leader of the of Cheesebridge. And then I start seeing names on the screen. I was completely taken aback. One of which was Ben Kingsley as Archibald Snatcher, the uh, kind of the he reminds me of like the the marionation version of the weird pedophilic uh, kid snatcher from Chitty Chitty Bang yes. Bang. Oh, very definitely. There's, yeah. there's chunks of, of him in there. I, I, I clearly... Uh, Voiced by Ben Kingsley. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was the crazy who, part. Who, if you watch the extras, and the extras on this are fantastic. That's uh, true. He, he explains that the way he came with the character voice was to do all, this, all the, uh, the lines leaning back as far as he could in a chair. So you kind of got this corpulent, you know, all the, the juices in your body are weighing down on your organs. And the wonderful sequence where he, it's revealed he's allergic to cheese. Because cheese is actually a big subplot in this and very well uh, entertainingly yeah. handled. And he just becomes this monstrous, cysty, swollen thing that still thinks but, that he's going to be one of the upper crust. Yeah, because cheese is a status symbol, so he wants to be able to eat the cheese. Even cheese though and he's, hats. Cheese and, cheese hat and hats. Yeah. 
So it's very British. Uh, a great, <laughs> a, a, and also one of the ones that nobody seemed to know was was in there. And until the final credits, I'm like, really, Tracy Morgan? Tr- okay, that was that was the part. So the like the three little henchmen guys that follow around Archibald Snatcher are uh, Mr. Trout, Mr. Pickles, and Mr. Gristle, voiced by Nick Frost, Richard uh, Ayoade from the IT crowd, and Tracy Morgan. Yeah. I couldn't recognize any of them. Richard Aoti, I could. But, a little yeah, bit, because it, Because it, he's got such a wonderful, distinctive voice. Uh, but, you know, a great henchman. The, everything about this just knocks it out of the park. And, and for those of you that have a, th- a 3D Blu-ray player, this is absolutely one of the titles you need to invest in. Like this, over the past year, you know, there aren't many times where I say you, you really need to put the extra money down. But like this... Um, and uh, Gravity and Pacific Rim are films that just like, if you've got the facility to watch them in 3D at home, you absolutely need to. Just out of curiosity, kind of off subject, have you tried How to Train Your Dragon 2? Have you looked at the 3D Blu-ray of that? I have not, and I because I, I don't dare, because if I do, then I, I'm never going to leave the home, because I'd like... <laughs> um, I, I think the thing is, yeah, for you, it's Lego Movie, then Box Trolls. For uh, me, it's How to Train Your Dragon 2, <laughs> then Box Trolls is my favorite animated features last year. Right By the way, how shocked is everybody about Lego Movie not getting oh, an animation? We've bitched about it on so uh, many shows at this point. I am baffled. I literally was Blackfoot. on a I was on a radio uh there's a radio station in Washington DC called 106.7 the fan and it's a sports station but they do a segment every Thursday called Crossing the Streams and uh it's just they talk about movies and video games cuz he's the guy who hosted is also a big geek and I'm one of his go-to movie guys and he had me call in today and talk about the Oscar nominations and he was about to sign off and I'm like no I have to say one more thing Lego Movie was robbed Lego Movie was robbed and he's like Man, you're really beating the drum hard for that. And I was like, you bet your ass. I well, I, I was particularly appalled because I think, uh, you know, you put, you put Tale of uh, Princess Kaguya, um, which is a extremely subpar Studio Ghibli, uh, release in mm-hmm. there ahead of Lego Movie, which was pretty revolutionary. And Song of the Sea, which nobody saw. Which nobody's seen. But that, there's always yeah. one that nobody's seen. But yeah. yeah, I think, you know, this is, this absolutely deserves absolutely. to be in the nominations. Yeah. Uh, and I think now becomes, uh, the hot outside pick in the nominations. This is a great, great animation. I, I really think among the nominees, this should be the front runner. Yeah, I I think so. But uh, but oh, Simon Pegg. I won't say who he voices, but also so you have Nick Frost and Simon Pegg <laughs> doing a voice in the. I had no idea. It was fantastic to find out. And this Blu-ray, as Richard mentioned, is chock full of extras. There are so many behind the scenes featurettes. There's a total of five of them. Uh, there's a commentary with the directors. There are animatic sequences. There's a total of six of those. And then there are five more production featurettes. I mean, it's crazy. Like, this thing is just full of extra features. And the thing to remember when you're watching this, just to reinforce how wonderful this is, about 90% of everything you see on the screen is hand-done stop-motion work. The, the, the creative team at Leica, I think, are just pushing the bar on what you can do in this medium. And my hats are off to you, and I am always excited when I hear whatever they're doing next. White hats off to them, even. You hear it. Hey, hey. Now for some brie. Now for some brie, and now for some stinky, stinky monster cheese. <laughs> Let me guess. Let's talk about Lucy. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, dear. Okay, so I will say I was excited about the idea of this movie, seeing the trailers for it. I was like, okay, great. Completely ignoring the, the part of my brain going, 
It's Luc Besson. Why are you excited? Stop. He's directing it. Why are you excited for this? You know that's not going to be a good thing. Why are you excited? I'm like, yeah, but you know, Scarlett Johansson, it looks like a cool, like, female, like the last time he did kind of a female-led action movie, it was really good. He's like, yeah, but name the last good thing he's done. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, he produced Transporter. Taken. He, yeah, right? <laughs> you gotta go. That was the last good thing he did was Transporter because it made Jason Statham famous. I, I think producing Taken was the last good thing he did. <laughs> because yeah, well, I'm saying purely direct. No, purely director. Yes, Transporter is absolutely the right answer. And so I started to hear some negative reviews of this movie. And I thought, well, you know, I don't always agree. Whatever. Not a big deal. I sit down to watch it. And it starts to unravel almost from frame one. And it was just like that scene in Usual Suspects where Chaz Palminteri drops the coffee mug. <laughs> that was me watching this movie. was like, oh, no. no. Here's away from the exploding helicopter in slow motion. I want to, I want to, I want to get past all of the completely idiotic, high-minded sci-fi that's not as high-minded as it professes to be. I want to get past all of the sloppy special effects, and I just want to say, why in the blue fuck am I watching stock footage? The movie? Why is there so much goddamn stock footage? Like, I literally point to like, wait, did I accidentally put in a Planet Earth documentary? What, what the more, fuck is this? What has more stock footage, this or The Giver? Ooh, that's a good question. That is a close contender. That's a really good question. I think I think Ed Wood is the only person who has more stock footage in a movie than Lucy does. Okay, I'm gonna yet again. I will lay out the plot. Um, Scarlett Johansson is this. A uh, girl hanging around in random bit of, of Asia that's never really quite. Is, I is think it supposed it's to be, Taiwan. Is it Taiwan? I'm pretty it's like, sure it's yeah. Taiwan. Yeah. Um, who gets kidnapped and a load of drugs stuck into her stomach so that she's supposed to take them somewhere, but then somebody punches her, and uh, because these drugs are like mystical heroin, she suddenly develops superpowers. Hey, I'm hey, not hey, kidding. Let's stop right there and think about what this movie is basically telling anyone who watches it. Hey, kids, do drugs. The only way to achieve the use of more of your brain and a in a consciousness that lets you become one with the universe is to take a lot of drugs. Okay, actually, that makes sense now that I say it. Out so loud. basically, this this is a film by cokeheads for cokeheads. Yeah, it's it's a pro drug film. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. Very very bizarrely. <laughs> um, well, and then. Occasionally, it it gets it just starts cutting to a lecture series, yeah, which is just by everybody's favorite everybody's favorite voiceover commentary. Man. See, here's the thing: we don't have control of all of our brains, but if we did, some shit would go down. It would go down very heavily here in Shawshank. I really think you could have you could have lopped off most of all of the lecture series. Up until she actually meets him, and you wouldn't have lost anything from this movie. And in fact, it wouldn't have felt so haphazardly thrown together with all that bullshit stock footage. Okay, now, now I'm actually going to disagree with you a, a, just a smidge. Just a smidge. Don't give me that look, because it doesn't you help. Lucy lover. Uh, no. The, uh, in the opening sequence... You know, she's supposed to be hanging around with this guy that she's banging and he's trying to go, oh no, you, could you take this suitcase to this obviously suspicious Korean gangster who's hanging around? Yeah. And she's like, okay. And it keeps cutting to nature documentary stock footage of a gazelle going, doop, 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 doop. And then there's like, oh, here's a cheetah about to eat it. And I was watching that and going, okay, like this is kind of weirdly, woefully on the nose visual metaphor. 
But it's kind of clever than, and cool that Luke Besson is doing this as like this built-in weird commentary. But then as time goes on, he just keeps dropping unrelated pieces of footage in to convince you. It's like, oh, isn't there something amazening and mystical happen? There's literally a point where we're watching animals fuck. Yeah. It has no bearing on anything going on. Like if you want, yeah, the gazelle thing, obviously visual metaphor for what's happening in that scene at that moment. Animals fucking, not sure why it's, it's in there. And I'm not even sure whether that's actually just stock footage or it's just like, yeah. 30 second outtake from uh, Bad Touch uh, by the Bloodhound Gang <laughs> Jimmy Pops such an underrated rapper but side point <laughs> you know this is it starts off as kind of a like weird action movie and then becomes a weird action sci-fi movie as she you know the packet of drugs splits in her stomach and she starts becoming like at one with the cosmos and then she develops these weird superpowers that actually don't make any sense it's like she can touch somebody and tell if they've got a headache it's like that's not how genes work and even (laughs) because this is the thing like they they the whole thing is like well what if you can use more of your brain well, you could use more of your brain. This just means you're thinking faster, which, all, by the way, you know, the reason you're only actively using that 10%, which is only a theory and it's not true, um, it's a theory made by idiots, um, is that the other 90% of, of your brain is being used to stop you dying yeah. and, like, make sure your lungs work and stuff like, you know, the useful stuff. So, like, it was like, oh, you're using the other 10% and, and, and your heart stopped. Why? Are you okay? It's like, I'm thinking faster, but you're dead. So this, the whole idea of the film, and they actually have a 10-minute little mini-doc saying, oh, no, it's not gibberish. Yes, it clearly is. <laughs> Luc Besson, you're, you're, I spoke to some, some uh, famous scientists. No, did you really, Luke? No, I did not. <laughs> I am the liar. Um, but then, like, at least we're having fun with the idea of super-powered Scarlett Johansson kicking people in the head or using gravity her new gravity defying powers oh, and then suddenly she becomes, she becomes magneto like none of this shit makes sense um and then she becomes black goo because in decide in the last 45 minutes it's going to become transcendence yeah and honestly no film needed to be transcendence not even Transcendence. This Some, film has no idea what it is or why it's doing it. Somewhere between Transcendence and that episode of South Park where Cartman becomes one with his trapper keeper. Yeah. Uh, you know, some, somewhere where he starts literally, like, bonding with other technology. Yeah. Yeah. Like she, she, this is... I, I can see her decision-making process in some of the scripts she's taking. There's kind of a connection here to what she was trying to do with her... Uh, there's kind of a connection to uh, Under the Skin, which is one of my favorite films of last year. There's, you know, I, I can see her the, the logic of what she's trying to do with her scripts. This is the worst example of what she was trying to do with her scripts. Here's my question. Why, in addition to all these powers, does she become stupid when she had... Because literally, she goes from acting and giving a normal performance as a human to... I can now use all of my brain, and I am going... And she literally starts talking like this, as if this is how you talk when you use all your brain. I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. Why are you brilliant and an idiot at the same time? Maybe the first bit of the rest of her brain that she was using was the bit that allows you to actually enunciate and put in, you know, any kind of intonation into your text. This is the blankest reading of a script I think I've ever seen. It's like they were like, no, we want you to eventually become a computer, so you're going to start talking like one immediately. And I'm like... 
No, and I gotta say this about all... I disagree with you. I think all of her powers make sense if you remember that they stuffed a big bag of MacGuffin into her guts <laughs> so they could just do... Yeah, whatever. The drug does that. I'm kidding. No, it's it's obviously terrible. Uh, this this movie is is laughably bad. Yeah. Like, it, it gets to the point where I'm just like, okay, I'm done being mad at you, and now you're just absurd. Like, now, now you're just making me laugh with your complete ineptitude. And that, that it's so ridiculous. And the, the CG... Like, oh, Australopithecus or whatever it is. Oh, at which the beginning. is terrible. I'm like, why is this here if it looks this bad? Why did you spend money, realize it looked that bad, and still use it when you could have just edited it the fuck out? Because they'd spent the money in this thing, made a ridiculous amount of cash. Andy Circus busy apparently oh, that day. Couldn't I... come in to do a mocap session for five seconds. <laughs> Andy Andy Circus's house cleaner possibly came in and went, "Oh yeah, yeah I can do that. Don't worry." <laughs> Don't care for this movie, but at all, and I'm really sad to say that because I wanted it to be good, but I don't know why I expected anything other than exactly what I got, considering Luc Besson's track record of mine... Being Luc Besson. Being Luc Besson, absolutely. So, if you're interested, um, this has, what, two special features, the evolution of Lucy, and cerebral capacity, the true science of Lucy... True and science never never said. Well, they're in quotation two. marks, like separate quotation marks. Yeah, the, the true science. science. <laughs> the, the, yeah, this is like it's it's like Republican evolution denialism <laughs> in an EPK. Honestly, this is abysmal. Everybody involved should be ashamed. Moving on to a film that used to be called "We Gotta Get Out of This Place" and is now called "Bad Turn Worse." My only objection to this film, the fact that they took a really good title and gave it a title that is hard to pronounce. Because you get halfway through and go, that doesn't make any sense. Bad, bad turn, bad turn. Bad, bad turn. Battern, battern, like butter, batter. Batter, 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 swing. This is a film uh, uh, directed by Simon Hawkins and Zeke Hawkins and written by Dutch Southern, who is a guy I actually got to know when he was running a t-shirt website called... Uh, Oh my gosh, now I can't remember the name of the... I think it was called Dutch Southern. I think that was the name of the of the t-shirt company. Uh, they made that really excellent... Uh, that shirt I have that has Snake Plissken, Charlton Heston from Planet of the Apes, and Mad Max, and it says, Hope for a Better Tomorrow. <laughs> they made that shirt. It's one of my favorite shirts. And I was like, wait, whoa, 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 he's writing movies now? That's a different career path from making geek t-shirts, but way to go, Dutch. I think that's awesome. This is a film we actually saw, not this last Fantastic Fest, but the one before that... Uh, and it's actually, in my opinion, a really, a really solid little Texas a Southern Fried Noir. Basically, what it, it revolves around these three teenagers who are trying to get out of their town. They don't like living here. It's a, it's a very small town in Texas where the best thing about it is it has a Whataburger. Yeah. Um, and one of their friends ends up taking coming into a lot of money, and it's like, hey, we got all this money, we should go. And it's let's like, go to Corpus Christi for the weekend. Let's go to like, Corpus yay. Christi because that's the most exotic place we can think of. And uh, and then it comes come to find out he didn't obtain this money legally, nor did he steal it from people who aren't psychopaths. So <laughs> psychopathic gangsters running a money laundering operation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so as you can imagine, shit goes wrong, and uh, people get in over their heads. And people get in over the heads for no other reason than being friends with the people who did stupid shit. Yeah. Go. There's your movie. That is, that is it. This And it, it, one of the great things about it is it opens with a Jim to- with a quote from Jim Thompson. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. knows exactly what it is. It is proud of what it is. 
you know, this is this is teen noir done beautifully. Mm-hmm. You really get the sense of des- you know, you know it, it no longer is the way to solve your noir problems. You find a big ca- a big bundle of money somewhere. It's that you get a scholarship to get the fuck out of bumfuck nowhere, Texas. Right. Um, it, great cast. Uh, the particular high point is uh, Mark Pellegrino, who plays Giff, who is the the local the guy they steal the money from, who is. You know, he's a gangster, and he's the biggest gangster in a town of maybe 600 people. <laughs> which is, you know, so you, he knows, like, he's at the bottom of the... He, he's top of the bottom of the pile in every way possible. And this mm. is a guy who's gone, screw it. I can just be mean because everybody here is afraid of me. Right. Every single person in this town knows not to fuck with me, and somebody fucked with me. So, screw it. I'm just going to get away with whatever the hell I want. And... He's so good in this. Like, yeah, it, it is. It's a you know career-defining performance from him. I mean, I'm, I was aware of his work before this, but this is one where I went, "Holy shit! This guy needs to get a lot more work." This is like Pat Healy, kind of circa uh, Great World of Sound. That you suddenly go, "This isn't just a, a good actor, a reliable actor. This is somebody who's got something really special, a real spark that can add something to a film." Right. Pellegrino just should be just like people should be banging his door down after this movie. Yeah, and I, what I love most about this movie is that you know it's a very sparse setting. Like, just it's it's a very simple plot. It's a very like lonely kind of podunk town where there's miles between neighbors. Like, it's it's sparse even in its setting. But what it what it doesn't have in clutter, it still finds a lot of grit. Like there's grit in those open spaces, and this is a very gritty film noir, and is is handled with the same amount of attention and the same amount of adherence to what makes noir great as you would see in a movie set in a in a giant city, or you know a, a movie set uh, in the 1940s in the in the seedy streets of Chicago. Like it finds those moments and it sits in them so well, and especially. I loved finding out. I don't know if I should spoil it, but I loved finding out who the boss's boss was. Oh yes, no, and don't spoil it because spoil that it, is a moment where you just go, "You understand the medium you're you're dealing with here." Absolutely, um, absolutely. Great performance by Mackenzie Davis as well as Sue, the girlfriend who kind of gets caught in the middle of all this nonsense. Who you know, this is a small Texas town, so she doesn't have the opportunity to be completely girly girly. She you know, it keeps cutting to her working in her dad's auto shop. Uh, but, but the reason that she should get particular plaudits is she's actually Canadian, and you would never know from her. I didn't in know fact, that. her performance this and pulling off a small town Texas accent, it, West Texas accent, is so good. They hired her for Halt and Catch Fire, uh, the, wow. the, the AMC series about you know, uh, you know Silicon Prairie, the the yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when Dallas was the center of the semiconductor industry in the eighties, and she wow. got that part because we went well. She clearly knows how to do a Texas accent. This is just a you know, a, a really stellar little nasty noir with a great cast. This is, you know, a, a full recommendation. This is this is in a tough week for some really strong releases. This was perilously close to being my pick of the week. Yeah, I'm I'm looking over and I think I think this is gonna be my pick of the week. I mean, I, I really liked Box Trolls. Uh there's a movie I know that's gonna be yours that I really liked as well, but yeah, I, I think this is going to be my pick of the week. Yeah, it, I said the, it. The, this is a great week for for indies, uh, uh, and yeah, box trolls as well. God damn, I got we got some good stuff coming up this week. We also have some dirge. I was going to say, speaking of the opposite of good, let's talk about Atlas Shrugged Three. <laughs> okay, what the blue fuck? Let me explain, please, because um, I don't want to. 
I have always wondered what would happen if you made a film out of a book written by aliens who did not comprehend anything about human beings. So not only the did they not comprehend thing. anything about movies, they didn't comprehend anything about people. Yeah. Okay. The, the Nothing about this makes any sense. Yes, of course, this is part three of the... <laughs> Inexplicable franchise that is Atlas Shrugged. Because somebody decided, hey, let's take Ayn Rand's terrible, terrible novel, uh, hire a cast who barely knows how to read a script... Or read. Um, get the most inartfully shot, <laughs> inartfully put together script uh, that barely makes a lick of sense. Um, shoot it terribly. Have enough money knocking around for a couple of really, really awful uh, special effects shots. So bad. Um, so, so bad. So bad. And, then, and hey, guess what? More stock footage. And then uh, a couple of people turn up from Fox News. Yeah, this this is not much like the book. This is not a narrative. This is not this is not anything that would pull you in as a story. It's a rhetoric machine. Yeah, that's all. This is this is a fucking delivery system for the most fucked up view of America that you could possibly imagine, which is basically we don't give anybody anything because fuck people. Yeah. Do it yourself or die. Yeah. That's it. That's the whole... And we're supposed to be like, yay, this guy's a good guy. No, fuck him. <laughs> fuck him and his whole, like, we don't, you know, we'll give if we want to, but we're not going to be told what when and what we have to give. I'm like, no, you're just a greedy fuck. Like, yeah. is, is, and you're trying to paint yourself as the hero who's going to save America when in reality, you're a douchebag. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but if you've seen the previous two, well, you know, it's your own fault uh, at this point. Um, everything is bad about this. The character, uh, the, the characters, I say yeah, characters. with quotation the card, fingers. The, the cardboard cutouts yeah. that pass as humans, right. but do not pass as actors. Wait, because, are you still talking about Fox News? Oh, hey. hey oh. Hey, oh. Um, nobody in this film knows how to deliver a line. The, you know, they, basically at this point, all the rich people, <laughs> and this is what it is, all the rich people have gone, let's, let's go hide out because without our genius, civilization will collapse. No, fuck you. Yeah, it really, it really, it really what is What actually that. should have, should have happened is everybody goes, hey, great, the douchebags have disappeared. Wow, I wonder what would happen to America if all the billionaires disappeared. Oh, maybe we would start passing policy that actually benefits the people and not private interest. Oh my god, we'll collapse! Yes. Fuck you, go live in your bubble, see if we give a shit. And what's even more hilarious is that they're supposed to have gone up to this this place in the middle of nowhere where they're going, we shall wait for civilization to collapse without us. And then this bunch of knuckleheads who clearly have done nothing in their entire lives are supposedly suddenly self-sufficient. Yeah. I've met very rich people. I have seen them in operation. A large chunk of them can scarcely wipe their own asses. In operation, and, and, you're, and you're really just looking at this, going, "Oh yeah, yeah." The guy who's supposed to is supposed to have run a railway system suddenly he is the one who's fixing his own car. No, he's not. Also, how does the pirate who is supposed to be off randomly killing people on the seas? I'm sorry, you're the hero. You kill innocent sailors. You're a scumbag. He should have been shot and tipped, you know, or. Over the over the yard arm with him, appalling, appalling character, and he's held up as a hero. Yeah, like these are these are killers, murderers, and marauders. And, and Ayn Rand, because she was bonkers, goes, "Oh no, they're they're the heroes of this." I I, I will cut to the chase on this. 
Uh, and then we should move on because I think there's nothing good to say about this film at True. all. True. Um, in most of the world, outside of the United States, reading Ayn Rand is regarded as a sign of, of either mental illness severe personality disorder or at least some degree of uh, stunted emotional growth uh, that you cannot empathize with with other people. Uh, the fact that this has been turned into a film uh, is a sign that libertarians have way too much money um, and are being duped by crazy people with a lot more money who want to make them go out and go, oh no, look, this film got into the top ten, which it didn't. The whole thing was to try and put an Ayn Rand adaptation into the top ten of the American box office charts. And it never happened. They were giving tickets away and this shit has never happened. I think this thing just basically limped out on five screens and finally most on DVD. And it should just not. This is appalling. The most appalling thing is when you get to the end of this movie and it says, the end, wait for it, wait for it. Or is it just the beginning question? I'm like, I'm sorry. That's the kind of shit I would see in a student's first film. Yeah. Like a film student's very first try at making a movie would have something that idiotic attached or, to the end of it or a bad literary competition because i've i've, yes. I've been uh, i've been involved in a few of those and the number of stories where they go the end or is it and so it's the end of your literary career this no <laughs> just just we should stop because the filmmakers should have stopped two films ago i agree Ooh. i and the only the only final thing i will say is the saddest thing about this whole franchise is that steven tobolowski is in the third one. Oh. Did he not know? Tobolowski, you know better. You, buddy, you should. You're so much better than this. Get the fuck away from these people. They're insane. Anyway, moving on quickly before we... <laughs> before, before the pitchforks and, and, and torch the, crowd and aneurysms start bursting in our skulls, <laughs> we're going to talk about men, women, and children, mm. and why none of them should read Ayn Rand. No, about this movie called Men, Women, <laughs> women. and Children, uh, which I actually watched thinking we were going to cover it last week, so uh, I remember basically... The plot is about a number of relationships. Uh, you have uh, a couple that is kind of drifting apart. Uh, you have a, a young girl whose single mom thinks it's uh, a good idea to kind of take pictures of her wearing skimpy clothing at best and put it up on a website to get, get her popular. Uh, then you oh, have, it does that. Oh, it does that. Yeah, it does in, that. In all the wrong ways. Uh, then you... I mean... It's it's a it's a lot about relationships and oh and then a, a mother who is completely obsessed with the idea that she needs to protect her daughter from everything on the internet to the point of being a psycho about it. Like I don't know I don't know what other way to describe it. She is a completely uh authoritarian, just really oppressive mother who doesn't like who monitors every incoming message into the house, like text message email everything she reads everything her daughter gets and looks at and it's just and she's like the scary christian mom in the neighborhood like everybody else is kind of laughing at her and uh yeah so i mean you have all of these relationships kind of crashing into each other in this in this town and uh a lot of people have i think criticized this movie as being anti-internet as being sort of the the cautionary tale of the information age where all of these bad things happen and all of these relationships start breaking down because of various methodologies of talking to people and meeting people on the internet. And I think that profoundly misses the point. Absolutely. Um, I actually got to interview Jason Reitman, yes, son of Ivan, uh, who uh, direct, wrote and directed this. Um, it's an adaptation of a novel uh, originally. And he's, yeah, he was like, I don't get why people are saying, oh, this is a, a screed against internet, against the internet and 
uh, social media. It's it's clearly not. It's about how it has taken what people did anyway and changed it merely the media because mm-hmm. it's one of the more interesting subplots. Um, is Adam Sandler in one of his better straight dramatic roles in a while. He's, yeah, very surprising. Yeah, uh, he's a good dramatic actor. I think he just needs to stop doing comedies. Um, Forever, yes. yeah. basically. Um, just cancel that you know, Netflix deal right now. The, you know, the, the opening sequence is him going in, in, onto his son's computer and uh, looking through <laughs> the, the cache of porn mm-hmm. there and kind of going, oh, this is kind of sad. And the only reason he's in there is he's, He's actually looking for porn. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but it deals with issues like, you know, Ashley Madison and mm-hmm. you know, over-controlling parents who think, oh, if I just cut my child off from social media, then everything will be fine. Yeah. Um, it's with, actually with, with set parents, in Austin so as well. Yeah, it's set in Austin. And by the way, what, what I find interesting about her character is she's no different from the moms who outlawed heavy metal, yeah. the moms who outlawed rock and roll. I mean, it, there's always a scapegoat. There's always a reason, a, a, a clear, definable enemy that if we just get rid of that thing, our children will be fine. And it's like, you still have to be a parent. I'm sorry. Like, you can remove whatever boogeyman you want from the closet. You still have to be there and be present in their lives. You can't just be a police officer. And I think that's what she learns during the course of this movie, played by Jennifer Garner in a role that made me fucking despise her. Yeah. <laughs> which I then was like, okay, credit to you, because that's exactly the character you were supposed to be playing. Uh, and I want to give a special shout out as well to Judy Greer. Yeah. Uh, in a, a not comedic role, but at all, and really knocking it out of the park is the mom who, I mean, you want to, you want to hate her. Yeah. Because she's totally exploiting her daughter. Like, like taking these photos of her, like out and about, knowing very well that they're going to be up on a website where men are going to masturbate to them. But she thinks because of her experiences and her failures as an actress in her younger life, that this is a way to give her daughter a leg up. So her heart is kind of in the right place, even if her head is completely screwed on backwards about it. Yeah. And so it, it's a much more complicated character than, oh, this sleazy mom who's taking sleazy pictures of her sleazy daughter. This is a film that a lot of critics piled on when it was released theatrically, and I'm not quite sure what their issue was with it. Uh, Pete Travers over at Rolling Stone hated it, which is probably an indication that it's actually you know a lot better than, than you'd think. Well, he uh, couldn't say explosive or thrill ride on it, so he didn't, he didn't know what to do. He uses the same four phrase. He's a fucking terrible critic. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> There's a reason he's quoted on everything, because he'll say whatever they want him to say to get quoted on things. He's Rex Reed level. Yes, um, very much so. He's no, the I biggest mean, quote is, whore in the industry. A lot of people tried to portray this as like an internet version of Crash. It's clearly not. It doesn't... So system crash? Oh. <sighs> Hey oh go away. Okay. Um yeah, it it doesn't provide neat answers at the end. It's it stays quite awkward. People make some really bad mistakes and they're gonna have to live with the consequences of that. But it does say, you know, this isn't the internet isn't changing us. It's allowing us to express the good and bad about ourselves in new ways. And that the Middle America is just as dysfunctional as it's ever been. And what was interesting, kind of on a local point, was I knew quite a few people who went, oh, this isn't like Austin. It's set in Austin, but it's not like Austin. And I'm like, have you been down to the Tony bits of Southwest, of Southwest Austin? It's exactly like this. This is, you know, everybody's got a, got, you know, 
five bedrooms, four bathrooms, and, a, and two double car garages. This is this is that bit of America that's supposed to have everything together and has more access to the internet. And the, the hooker in the movie totally works here in town. She's awesome. I, I mean, uh, allegedly. Yeah, what, were you, what were you saying about allegedly. other things? Yes. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I, this is one that I think got got beaten up on, and I'm really not sure why. Uh, you know, it, it it is a little bit on the nose on some of its stuff, but you know, it's a morality tale at the end of the day, and there's far, but, far. But worse it's not preachy. Out. Like no, I don't not. feel that it's preachy. And here's here's the thing: I'm not a big fan of Jason Reitman. I'm not. I don't really typically get behind his movies. But I, what I enjoyed about this is that, and especially the the whole the whole intro and outro, the bookends by uh, narrator Emma Thompson, where she's talking about Carl Sagan, yeah, and she's talking about you know, uh, the, oh my gosh, the, the probe that was sent into deep space with like Voyager, Voyager, with all of this information about humankind, all of these various bits of information that were supposed to be the sum total, the, the culmination of everything that is human culture. And at the end, they have a quote from Sagan's, uh, pale blue dot. And I, what I feel is so apropos about that is that when you look at any map of the cosmos and you look at that pale blue dot that is earth you feel insignificant in the grand scale of the universe. This is a movie that takes that same idea and microcosmically narrows it down to everyday human interaction in any given city, any given town. We have become so bad at communicating. We've become so flawed in the way that we just talk to each other that we've become insignificant from one another. And I think the clearest... not, not It's not because of the internet... The internet only it serves the function that was already there, yeah. and I think that's why throughout this movie you see people you see what they're texting. You don't hear what they're saying. You don't really a lot of the side characters. You don't really meet them. You just see the things they're texting, the things that they're looking up online, because that's their whole world. We've the become in- insignificant to one another. The internet is the new suburbs, right? Exactly. You know, it's it it it's. You can get away with never seeing your neighbor, mm-hmm. even if you're actually r- literally rubbing shoulders with them. You don't have to communicate with them. And that's kind of a, you know, it, it, it is it is slightly tragic in, in some yeah. ways, this film. I've got to say, though, Sandler, yet again. Really? Yeah, you know, really. when he really, uh, there's, he has this kind of sense of quiet, calm, and, and you know, very compassionate character, and very, fo- you know, one with foibles and weaknesses, but he feels very rounded and real. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, and yeah, I. That was actually one of the other things when I was talking to Reitman about it. And he, and he said, you know, and for all we give Adam Sandler shit on this show. We do. <laughs> particularly any time we had to watch Blended. True. Um, he is one of the nicest people to work with. He's like totally just calls up when he's not on set. Goes, how's everything going? Absolutely takes care of people. And actually, Jason Reitman, because I didn't get managed to... I wrote up the interview for the Austin Chronicle, and you can go on the Chronicle website, austinchronicle.com, and find it. But one of the things he told me was that there was this uh, one girl that he was talking to on set who was a a, a massive... um, Oh, what's her face? Ah! Oh, from Blended. Um, Drew Barrymore fan. Drew Barrymore fan, yeah. And she's a massive Drew Barrymore fan. So he just goes, oh, well, hang on. Just Just gets his cell phone. 
calls up Drew Barrymore and says, oh, there's a fan here who really wants to talk to you and just has the phone up to him. <laughs> like, he does that kind of thing. He's just a really cool guy. So, and uh, yeah, Adam, if you're listening, which you're probably not, but if you are, keep doing more dramatic roles because, you know, you've really got the chops and I think you're really coming into your own as a dramatic actor. And don't ever do a Jack and Jill movie again. Never again, yeah. Don't I mean, we, we will still give you crap about that, but as we, a dramatic actor, we really, yeah, I yeah. really think you've got some chops and you need to do this more. True story. Yep. Well, moving on from there, we're going to talk about a movie that I didn't get a chance to see, but I know you did, The Atticus Institute. Okay, now, you know how last week, I can't, oh, what the hell was the name, not last week, week before, we were talking about, there was a terrible um, found footage movie set in a mental asylum. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, one of the 20. Yeah. One of the the ever-increasing genre. I don't even remember the name of it, and I told you that I wouldn't be able to remember the name of it as soon as we got done recording, and I don't remember the name of it. One of the ever-growing number of Grave Encounters rip-offs. This is... A found footage uh, documentary, uh, basically set effectively in a mental asylum. Okay. It's really good. Really? It's actually legitimately good. It is a mockumentary. The idea is that there is it's the 1970s, and um, a research team is trying to find some evidence of paranormal activity. And they go through the process of, like, the first person they... they think they're getting somewhere really good with. It turns out that one of the researchers is actually fixing the results. But then they find this one woman who seems to have some degree of ESP. And they start going further and further down the rabbit hole. But it's shot in a really good mockumentary style with archive footage and then cuts to you know members of the team talking now about what happened and you know what you know their experiences during this and dark implications that something goes wrong and then the because her powers are so good the military starts getting involved and things get worse and worse and worse and you suddenly realize like this isn't just ESP something worse something really bad is at play and you really shouldn't be meddling with this and they and they there's several of the characters go you know you start doing the research and you think oh let's just keep going and then you suddenly realize too late this was a terrible terrible idea and you have no idea what you're really dealing with Normally, this kind of film, utterly dispensable, not really interesting, no good scares, no good mm-hmm. sense of tension. This has it. This wow. actually works. And I am shocked that I'm saying this. <laughs> I, really, I really am. Because I was like, it's going to be another one of these. No, 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 no. But no, I, you know, it, it, it follows the structures of a documentary extremely well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it understands what to do with the found footage. The found footage, there's one shonky effects shot at the end that is kind of like, you didn't even need to do that. Mm-hmm. And you clearly wanted to get the effect of a broken camera lens and you did it in post and it doesn't quite work. Mm-hmm. Um, you should have just broken the camera lens on set. <laughs> like, just do it that way. Like It's easy enough to do. Uh, this this doesn't quite, quite capture it. But I was really surprised how much I was drawn into this and I huh. did not expect to be. You know, like I said, I thought, yeah, this is virtually a dead genre, uh, but this really works well. It's very character-driven. It doesn't put one character front and center. It's a real ensemble piece in the way that those kind of documentaries are. Um, yeah, really surprised how much I enjoyed this and did not expect to in the, in the slightest. Sanatorium. That was it. That was an, and oh, I had to look it up. But it yeah. was not memory coming to me. I had yeah, to look no, it up. This is, this is really actually, it, you know, it catches the time. The set dressing is right for the seventies, and it does catch that era when you know people were you know seriously researching ESP, including the U.S. government. They mm-hmm. were they you know remote, there was a real remote viewing program, 
If you've ever seen... Uh, yeah, it's called remote dead. viewing. Now it's yeah. called digital noise. Wah, wah. Wah, wah. Uh, but if you've ever seen uh, The Men Who Stared at Goats, um, you know, which is based on an actual, uh, you know, a, a, a actual book about that whole remote viewing program. You know, these things are there. So it kind of ties into some real history. And it's like, you know, this, this does everything that the quiet ones failed to do <laughs> as well. <laughs> you know, again, this whole, you know, people are trying so hard to get this, get this right. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the one that is by far the most successful because it feels like an accomplished piece of filmmaking. Well, and I've always been intrigued by the idea of taking a more sci-fi approach to the ghost story. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess I'll have to watch this one this, now. This is, yeah, surprisingly good. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, moving on to a little film that I know Richard is... is Well, I, I'm very excited to talk about it, too. I can't lie. And that is Coherence. Oh, yeah. Um, Coherence, which I'm going to go ahead and guess is probably Richard's pick of the week. Uh, this this actually may tie. Ooh, a tie. A, there may be a tie on this, but yeah, this uh, played at Fantastic Fest um, 2013, and I was... I was jaw dropped by I, how good. I'm kicking myself for not this is seeing a, this. Thing. This is a thirty thousand dollar film. Yeah, uh, super low budget. That when they went back in, when they and and they did reshoots, and the budget to uh, one because one of the actresses had cut her hair, and the budget to buy her a replacement wig was actually higher than the shooting budget for the for the first <laughs> half of the film. Like this is. Uh, insane, insane. This um, the basic idea is that a um, a bunch of people in LA are having a dinner party one night. Um, that's nice enough and it's social enough. And one of them tells a story about you know this woman in was Iceland, I'm trying to remember, I think who so. kills her husband. And the police come and say, "Well, what did you do?" And she said. This isn't my husband. My husband died five days ago. Yeah. I don't know who this person is. Yeah, creepy story. And they go, oh, this is weird. Why, what would that... Then the lights go out due to... A comet yeah. passing overhead. And then things get strange. Yeah. But in a beautiful, plausible, character-driven way, as you suddenly realize... Okay, a basic law of physics has collapsed. Mm-hmm. Why? What's happening? How are these individual characters? This nice, smart, not going to turn on each other, and suddenly, or, or one of them suddenly becomes an evil villain. Yeah, bunch of people. What are they going to do? How do they respond? These are ordinary people put into a high concept science fiction environment. It's mind blowing. It's this high concept, sad. but it's executed with such simplicity. Yeah. And that's, and I think that's where that's where the beauty comes from in this movie is that it's a very simply delivered, a very complicated idea. Yeah. And I don't. It's funny. Like I want to talk about it, but I feel like the whole thrill of the movie is figuring out what's going on. So but it's it's really like tremendously will, difficult to get too into this. One clue that is actually very important for you to follow, and you should be able to work this out very soon. But there was a moment where you realize. And this this speaks to the elegance of the storytelling, that a huge amount of information is stored up in the color of um, some individual chemical glow sticks. Yes, yes, that you very have much so. to keep track of that yeah. because you suddenly realize, like, I was given a huge amount of information by that, which again, it's so 
perfect and tiny and small. Mm -hmm. This is actually a very good, it's a very strong cast who just went, let's make a movie. Mm -hmm. And if this thing works, it's great. Uh, if it doesn't, if it's just a kind of nice little thought experiment that we never go anywhere with or never mm -hmm. do anything with and never gets released, then fine. But this is, this is a lightning in a bottle indie film. And I, this I, is proof that you don't need money to do something really great. I agree. And what I like most about it is they don't spend the whole movie talking about what's going on. No. Because a lot of times in a movie like this that has a low budget that tries to delve into high sci-fi, it's a, it becomes a talking heads movie. Yeah. I mean, I actually like the movie, uh, but the, the one about the man, the man from Earth yeah. is an example of this, where it's, it's a party and the entire science fiction concept is doled out over several long, long, long monologues. And it's like, that's fine, but I prefer something like this, where they find just the right balance of, I don't mean action in the sense of like, you know, action movie action. I mean, uh, movement and, and happenings. And dialogue. Like, there's the perfect balance of those two things to give you everything you need to know without overselling anything, without over-explaining anything, and without under-explaining anything either. And um, one of the best performances is Nicholas Brendan from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who plays a slightly washed-up actor who now is pigeonholed from his one part on TV. Yeah. And there's this real kind of wounded charm to him he's really really good in this and like it really deserves off the back of this alone more scripts and better scripts but this is yeah this is a, a fascinating complicated tiny film that works so well it's the antithesis of, of other low budget uh high concept science fiction films like i i do not like Another Earth, the Brit Marling film, because I think that that spends far too much time explaining what's going on for mm. no good reason. I don't know, like I don't need you to explain it; just do it. Or then it goes on a diversion that is nothing to do with the actual plot. This is always on point. This is elegant. Mm -hmm. It's refined. It's smart. This is yeah. This is a just if you like intelligent uh, kind of post Twilight Zone. Like the the not the the kind of weird scary stuff, but like the just really clever idea, well executed by a strong cast, that kind of science fiction. This is absolutely a must buy for you. And writer directed, this is interesting to me. Writer director James Ward uh, Birkitt also was one of the writers on Rango, really, which is really interesting to me. Yeah, <laughs> very very bizarre. <laughs> but I was it was it struck me because the only other things he's really done is he's directed like video games. Yeah. It's just so weird, and it's yeah, the elegant is the perfect word I think to describe this movie. Really, really enjoyed this film. Definitely, highly recommend it. As well as our next movie, Honeymoon. Yeah, which this is the tie. This, this is where is the a, tie is, comes in. Yeah, this is this is such a strong week for kind of stuff that did the festival circuit a year ago and is now mm. coming out. Uh, this turned up at uh, South by Southwest 2014. Uh, I didn't have a chance to see it then. Uh, and everybody I spoke to who saw it then raved about it. And I see why. A mm. uh, very simple setup. A couple is on their honeymoon. They can't really afford much. So they just decide to go stay at her family's uh, little little lodge down by the, you could say it's a cabin in the woods. You could because but it's you a cabin in the shouldn't. woods. But it's a cabin um, in the woods. Shut up! It's actually <laughs> a cabin by a lake. 
So, wait a minute, is that the one where Judd Nelson murders people and leaves their bodies floating underneath? Usually, yeah. Okay, do you remember, do you remember that series of made-for-TV movies, Cabin by the Lake? No! With Judd Nelson? Oh god, now I do. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Let that come screaming back into your brain. Oh god, can we not? Um, <laughs> but they, yeah, they, they go up into the woods and everything's nice and they're, they're really having a good time. And then they run into one of her old friends who seems to have something weird's going on with him and nobody else is around. So they, then there's some weird noises in the around the house. And then suddenly the wife is in the middle of the woods, naked, stressed out. The husband finds her and takes her back. And then things start to really cave in. Yeah. Um, this reminded me in some ways of uh, one of my favorite... Uh, horror movies of recent years, Seventh Moon, the Eduardo Sanchez one, where he basically went to China and shot a horror movie bootleg. This is a a relationship drama, first and foremost, uh, in a sci-fi environment. Yeah, and you know, he, and the SF, and the SF, it's either SF or it's horror or it's supernatural. And you're not quite sure for the duration of the film exactly what's going on, but the wife is basically something's wrong with her, mm-hmm. and. The question is, how much does she know about what's wrong with her? Because yeah. she's like, she's clearly trying to keep the relationship together for some reason. Yeah, and here's the thing: I I really appreciated the metaphor. I really appreciated the the idea of what's happening to her, serving as this sort of metaphor for being unsure at the beginning of a marriage. If you can, you know, I mean, the, the cold feet doesn't end with "I do" necessarily. I mean, the honeymoon is still very much within that early stage, and there are still a lot of nerves so that it can be a scary time, and I get that. My problem with the movie, like, it's not even really a problem so much as what keeps me from loving it as much as you clearly do, is that I feel like ultimately the surprise, the the turn, when we what we find out what's going on, just felt a little ordinary to me. Just felt a little, you know, it, it just felt a little routine. Whereas I was okay with that because I was like, you kind of, when you get to the end, you go, okay, this is that trope. And it mm-hmm. is a trope. And you'll get to that point and you'll go, yeah, I understand what it is. Mm-hmm. But then you realize what this relation, that this is all relationship driven. Right. And that fine, the final sequence, is, I think it just is a fascinating way to play this out. You'll get to the end and. There is no way you don't have an emotional response to that final sequence, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a lot of films you're kind of like, oh, that came to the end. This you'll go, okay, now I, I need to go away and emotionally process this uh, as much as anything else. Uh, the, you know, and it comes down to the strength of the of the couple. Uh, uh, played by Rose Leslie, who most people will probably know as the wildling girl from Game of Thrones. And uh, Harry Treadaway. And um, Harry Treadaway. Uh, Rose Leslie is great in this. She really this is. Really, she's, she is uh, an indie horror Anna, Anna Kendrick. Yes. Which I'm okay with. Uh, yeah. this, this is really her film. You know, Harry Treadaway, I think, realizes a lot of his job in this is to give her a sounding board and a platform to work with. And he does, you know, he doesn't fall into the background mm-hmm. you do feel this is a very balanced performance but she really shines in this this is yeah i think these two this and coherence they're both testament to like you don't have to have a big effects budget to do something really special and smart within the science fiction environment yeah i mean that's it's it's the definition or the epitome of great festival movies yeah i mean they're they're movies that aren't spending 
gobs and gobs of money because if they were they wouldn't bother playing festivals yeah um but you know well, they turn, they play a festival and then go away yeah exactly yeah. but this is yeah this is i think this is a very well done movie i think the performances are outstanding i think the the relationship metaphor at the heart of it is very strong i i don't know i guess i just wanted a better supernatural antecedent for the metaphor than the one i got i no, guess that I, was my I, only i i was okay with it because i went you know this is about what if you put this particular couple into this environment and i i felt the payoff was absolutely worth that because it, it, it didn't try and come up with something super big and clever that's going to distract you from the fact that you can go okay okay now i know what they're doing um okay how are they operating within it i think mm-hmm. doing more doing something new doing something bigger with it i think actually would have kind of put a hole that you're going to fall into and be distracted from the, what is at the core, which is the performances. Maybe. And that's that's why I was okay with it. I can see why you... Why you yeah, I see your point completely. But for me, I think that was one of its strengths, was didn't try and overachieve on that side. It, it, it dealt with the real heart, which is the characters. Fair enough. Well, that was Honeymoon. And we're going to move on to, uh, I think... Did you and I review Dinosaur 13, or was that Chris and I? That was that was you and, and Chris, because okay. I don't... Yeah, no, that was you and Chris. Okay, well, let's just... Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi. That documentary made me really angry. This documentary made me furious. Uh, (laughs) I am... I feel like a terrible person that I was not aware of the story of Aaron Schwartz. Uh, This is the the Internet's Own Boys, the documentary we're about to talk about. Yeah. I was woefully unaware of Aaron Schwartz. Um, I'm not much of a Reddit user, and I'm not as politically in tune as I should be as a citizen of a, of a country and as a human being, as part of the human race. But I will say that um, Aaron Schwartz is a brilliant young man who was one of the founders of Reddit and a number, a number of other websites, other movements. I mean, this is one of the most active activists uh that the the uh the internet age has ever seen yeah i mean this is a guy who you know he was so brilliant that he started going to to stanford at a young age and then he was at harvard like he was invented he basically invented what would become wikipedia when he was 12 years old yeah he was a computer genius and one of the things that as he got older really irked him was the idea that the internet, which should be about the free exchange of information and the cataloging of the cumulative wealth of knowledge of our entire history, has become an industry. Yeah. And there is a pay-for-play access to uh, the canon, to, to all of the information that we should, as the human race, have access to. And he worked very hard to make the internet a place where ideas were free and that's what got him in trouble with the U.S. government. I don't want to go too much into the story because you really do need to watch this documentary. But it's such a tragic story about a guy who literally had no interest. He was not a guy that was out for private interests. Like there's there's a great story about, you know, he was one of the founders of Reddit. Reddit got bought by uh, this huge magazine company that also owned Wired. And so he goes to work at their San Francisco office, which is this big you know, they've got tons of money. They're not really asking. They're not only are they not asking him to do anything once they've bought the company, but they're putting these locks on his computer that won't allow him to add anything to his computer. And it's like, I'm a programmer. You basically just handcuffed me and quits his first day. Yeah. 
you know, it's this job that I think a lot of us, as soon as we got in there, would be like, this is it. This is the dream. I'm making millions. I'm a kid. I'm 19 years old. I'm making millions of dollars. And it wasn't what he wanted to be doing. And immediately he starts, you know, becoming more socially involved and, and more politically active. And all of his, his entire movement was just, this information should be accessible to everyone. So, you know, he goes after a lot of the and this is what I didn't know. This is what I learned from this documentary is that a lot of the like JSTOR, I used JSTOR all the time in college and I was limited to what I could actually get from JSTOR because I, otherwise I would have had to pay for it. Yeah. Like the college had made a deal with him and paid a bunch of money, but I, as a student at that college, still was limited on what from JSTOR I could take or I had to pay. And what I didn't know is that those sites, those companies are funded by taxpayers and by government grants. And then still have the balls to charge people for academic an ex- articles. An exorbitant fee. None of which goes back to the academics. No, not yeah, at all. They, not they, at all. The researchers don't benefit from this. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the thing about Aaron Schwartz, I think a lot of people know him from the you know, uh, the prosecution of him for basically taking using a JSTOR account, hacking into some systems, uh, actually hard hacking into the, some systems, which is what they really finally got him for. Um and, and try, basically downloading all these academic papers and saying, we got them, they're available now, that's it. Bear in mind, he was not doing this so that he himself could profit. He was doing this so that people could actually fucking access the information that they should have by all rights had access to in the first place. Yeah. And so his legacy for a lot of people, I think, comes down to that one thing, this argument about should academic papers be available. What this does is put him into the much bigger political context of what he was trying to achieve. This isn't about, well, should you have access to a a couple of physics papers? This is about a guy who had serious ideas about how you change um, approaches to poverty and wealth and healthcare and so many issues. And this is a guy that had an immense impact on many people's lives and they knew nothing about it. And the tragedy is how much more of an impact he could have had. And the tragedy, again, comes down, or the, or the thing that's infuriating, I should say, is that the government goes after him. Yeah. The g- fucking government, the, the Justice Department that is routinely having dinner with the people that caused the financial meltdown of 2008 are trying to pin Aaron Schwartz as a dangerous online criminal, as this this hacker who is like part of this... You know, basically, as a terrorist, they're trying to make him look like a terrorist. I'm like, I'm sorry, his crime was what again? Yeah. And the way that they prosecuted him is they dragged out this 1986, like, they had to have blown the dust off of this thing. Like, literally had to pick it up and blow the dust off. It was a bill created by Congress after the movie War Games came out because they were too stupid to understand that what happened in War Games couldn't actually happen. Apparently, Congress at the time was so terrified of Russia that they didn't understand that movies weren't real. Yeah. They didn't understand that fiction was fiction. So they made this law, like, basically saying that anyone who manipulates new technology is is a criminal. And they tried to bring him up on 13 felony counts. And I'm like, and this, again, going back to Dinosaur 13, I'm like, are you fucking serious? This is, the problem is there's no oversight. One asshole in any position of power within the Justice Department can decide that they want to go after somebody to, you know, pin another medal on their chest before they go up the ladder. 
there's nobody above them going, this is ridiculous, throw that case out. And that's the fucking problem. This, is, this film actually in some ways makes a really interesting pairing with men, women, and children, which is the inability of people to catch up with what technology means. Mm-hmm. And what you have in the case of, of, of this is a justice system and a governmental system and a, and a, 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 a legislative system that is run by people who don't get it. Mm-hmm. Flat out do not get it. I mean, if you yeah. want to see ever see anything hilarious, you watch the Supreme Court try to get its head around an internet bill. Yeah. I mean, this is an organization where most of it, most, most of the people running it uh, and sat on the bench still handwrite all their notes and then have one of their staffers do the email for them. Yeah. They are, they have no clue what they're contending with. Yeah. And this system was abused to go after go after a guy who not only knew what this what it meant but could help shape it yeah. and said, "I get it." Because it's one of the real problem. I mean, one of the fascinating things about this is it, it points out a problem with modern technocrats that they go, "Oh, I understand how the technology works. You don't need to, which is why a lot of organizations, you know, I mean, Google X, if you're not concerned about what Google's high-end research group is doing, you need to do some more research because they're they're up to some... They really believe the singularity is not just coming, but is an excellent thing, Hmm. you know? So there's all these weird questions where he went, how do we make this all work for people? This is what it comes down to. The technology should never drive anything. People should drive the technology and should be put in a position where they are empowered by it. And that's it. He, and that that simple statement makes him dangerous. The film makes, you know, initially I was like, ah, they're going to try and make this guy look like a, you know, a martyr, like he was the greatest thing ever. And it's like, by the time you get, you get to the end, you're kind of like, he really was a martyr. He absolutely was this a is, martyr. Is, uh, you will be morally outraged by what is done to him and... By what we lost by not by him not being around to do more and to go further forward. Yeah. That's the tragedy of this film. Yeah, and it really honestly changed my entire view of the Obama administration. Yeah. Like I I have always kind of hoped, I guess, and, and like yes, I was aware of the things that as far as the NSA and a lot of the things that have been been wrong with the administration and my my thought was always his biggest problem is that he wasn't standing up to Republicans that were bullying him. But frankly, a lot of the legislation that put people like Aaron Schwartz in danger of going to jail and put other activists, internet activists in jail yeah. is directly Obama administration and legislation. And that just makes me fucking sick. And again, the wrong people are writing the legislation. People who don't understand what these things are. Yeah. If you don't know what it does, uh, it actually goes back. There's a very famous story that the uh, the first pinball machines in the UK um, were classified as gambling machines. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, because the first the, I saw the guy, pinball the documentary actually. The guy who was sent to sent to uh, you know, inspect whether they were actually um, working or not, uh, and whether they should be classified as game or a, a, a gambling machine. He didn't know what he was doing and just randomly hit buttons, and then he got a bonus game, and he went, "Well, clearly this is a gambling machine." Yeah. Because there's no skill involved. No, like no. And we're, we're going through the whole thing again. And this is a guy who I think if we'd have waited 20 years and Aaron Schwartz had been in a position where he was writing the legislation, putting this stuff together, guiding policy, we would be in a much healthier place than we're going to be. Absolutely. And the other thing to know about Aaron Schwartz is he was one of the people at the forefront of the opposition of SOPA. Yeah. And he was largely responsible for the reason that bill which should have steamrolled its way through Congress, did not even get passed. In one day, 
the in in Congress, like um, all of the support for the bill suddenly ran over to the opposition. Run away! Terrified. Run away! Run away! Run away! Run away! Terrified. This is a great documentary. This is this is a near miss on on my pick of the week. It's it's, heart- real, it's so close. It's heartbreaking. It is absolutely informative and direly so. I think everybody needs to watch this because I really felt like. I was in the dark. Is I it felt, too late for me to add this as a third pick of the week? Or is I, the entire, entire side part just going to be now, my pick of the week? Now I think this should have been my pick I of the th- week. Th- okay, why don't you... I've got my. T- I've got two picks of the week. I've got joint picks of the week. I think this, right, this the, the argument is made this that, is that we both one. have joint picks of the week because this is, this is a strong, strong week. Absolutely. Empty your purses out, people. <laughs> Absolutely. And use those Amazon links to do it. Yay! Yay! So we're going to move on from there before I get any sadder and angrier uh, to a very bizarre crime film from the 1980s called River's Edge. Oh. Such a weird movie. Have you never seen this movie? I had never seen this. I'd never heard of this movie before. You'd never heard of River's Edge. No. River's Edge is a... It, it's kind of been overshadowed a little bit. I think people have kind of forgotten about it. This was a landmark piece of uh, 80s cinema, of 80s teen cinema. It's, um, it's looks and feels initially like it's going to be kind of... Uh, you know, standard after-school special teen drama that something bad happens and, you know, people learn an important lesson. Hell no. It's important no. <laughs> to note that the guy who directed this went on to direct uh, quite a few episodes of Twin Peaks. I was going to say, I was going to say, the, my first impression once this movie finished is I was like, that felt like what would happen if David Lynch directed Dazed and Confused. Yeah. Because it is this weird... Like it is a, it's not even a murder mystery because mystery implies that you don't know who did it or there's some something to discover about it. There's nothing to discover. It, this movie starts with a young girl who has been murdered by her boyfriend, and I'm not spoiling anything to tell you that because he's sitting right next to her. He's sitting right there next to the corpse, like yeah, I did that, and proceeds to tell everyone yeah, I killed her, and then bring his friends out to see the body, and they all go, you didn't really kill her. Holy hell! You really you, killed her. You actually did. And this is a this is about it, it, it's based on a on a true case where this guy killed killed his friend. Um, and there's this he has this great line where somebody said, "Well, why did why did you why did you kill her?" And she and he went, "She was talking shit about mom." That was yeah, it. That was it. I was like, and you're like, "Holy hell!" This is the gateway film to a lot of late eighties to mid nineties kind of nihilist noir. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Greg Araki, and we'll be talking about a Greg Araki film in a, in a while. You know, I don't think he could have made his films without, or ha- be given the the leeway by the studios to make his films if this hadn't have come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a phenomenal cast. <laughs> oh my gosh, Crispin Glover, at his most Crispin Glovery. Like, again, like, if, if the movie has, I don't even know if I could call it a weakness, but it's what makes it feel like it was made by somebody from another planet is Crispin Glover is allowed to just, hey, man, we got to get you out of here. And, you know, man. And it's like and it's funny because he's in the same movie as Dennis Hopper. <laughs> it's, Crispin, it's Crispin Glover as Spicoli. Yes. From Fast Times at Ridgemont High because you go because Spicoli's like 
he's about as realistic as the Fonz. You want to you want to push push comes to shove on that film. You know, Sean Penn's great in it, but it's not a realistic character. If Spigoli was real, he'd be like your dangerous stoner prick friend who mm-hmm. always, like does not know when to stop. Sure. Um, uh, Keanu Reeves in one of his early this was really his breakthrough performance. And I was like, man, Ted Theodore Logan's kind of a dick without Bill. Yeah. It really is. It's like these bunch of, of losers in California who are, are going, well, what do we do? Do we call the cops? And what's really great is that the calling the cops moment doesn't happen at the end, as you think it's it's predictably going to. It's like they go, no, we shouldn't call the cops because it's our friend and it's not going to bring her back and this and that and that. And, you know, Kino character goes, no, we're going to call the cops and calls the cops. Yeah. And then it's like, well, they're going to come and they're going to find him. And they, um, this is where Dennis Hopper comes in. In one of his kind of rehabilitation roles, because by the late 70s, early 80s, basically nobody wanted to work with him because he was so fucking crazy mm-hmm. and a danger and a liability to have on set. And this is the same year that he did, um, I think it's this, Blue Velvet and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 are all, are all in this. All 86, all wow. All this year. It is, you know, it is, and this is... The part of what puts him back on the road to being, you know. Oh, and Hoosiers. Hoosiers as well. Yeah, this Blue is Velvet, Hoosiers, River's Edge, Texas Chainsaw 2, all the same year. Yeah. Uh, and he plays a character called Feck, who's a guy who, you know, he's basically a drug dealer who killed his, killed his girlfriend and is holed up and paranoid and is down a leg after a motorcycle accident. And he's a really strange, weird little character part. Uh, Ioni Sky as well, uh, pre-Say Anything. Mm-hmm. This is like a, a who's who kind of... Daniel Roebuck, who I loved in a movie called Dudes, and who has been working steady ever since. Like, you will recognize this guy immediately, even if you don't know what from. But he was really tremendous. I hope everybody goes and tracks down a movie called Dudes, where it was him and John Cryer in this, like, punk rock western. Anyway... Oh, uh, Joshua John Miller as well, who most people will know as the uh, the the littlest vampire uh, near from dark. Near Dark. Yeah, you know this is this is a, a real powerhouse cast. It's strange. It's moody. Uh, it's a massively influential film. I, th- I think the thing is, you'll go back and watch this, and you'll go, "This scene, this reminds me of a lot of other films." And then you look and go, "It's nineteen eighty six. Mm, there's no other films basically just ripped this off and it, and it clearly is a huge influence on on David Lynch I think I think the, you know you can feel the Lynch influences mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, coming into it but this also turns the corner I think for Lynch you know Twin Peaks owes this a big debt not just because the opening shot and the opening sequence there's no way that wasn't an, an influence on on Twin Peaks you can almost no hear the way on the planet. you can almost hear the yeah. And they you know they bring you know uh, Tim Hunter the director he's like he, he, like I said he directed a whole bunch of episodes in season 1 and he directed a lot of season 2 of Twin Peaks. He's you know this is it's a a landmark film. It's it, the sound the, its weak point is the score which doesn't really fit. It's Ever. too clearly trying to be Kind of a, a noir throwback, which is mm-hmm. a little bit too obvious. You could well, have done some, it, some much more fun stuff. And it's with the thing it. is, there's only like two moments of legitimate tension in the whole movie, and yet the soundtrack, the score wants you to think that the whole thing is tense. And I'm like, why would it be tense? It would actually be better if they took the soundtrack out entirely. It's like, rip the score away. What about this scene clean. is supposed to be tense? These are these are aimless, drifting people. Like, I nobody seems to really give a fuck in the first place. Where's the tension exactly? Yeah. 
this is I, I I love this film, and I'm really glad that our, our good friends over at Shout Factory, uh, who they're kind of gearing down a little bit on their horror releases because I think they've re-released every single decent horror on the planet. <laughs> so now they're really pushing into some uh, some kind of classic. Uh, 70s, 80s, 90s films that may have fallen off the table a little bit. And this I, is a. I hate re- to correct you. This is actually Kino Lorber. Oh, it's Kino Lorber, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Who, again, are kind of doing that. They're doing this as well. Yeah. They're, they're going into those archives that I think are, are ripe for rediscovery. Um, and this is a beautiful restoration. I don't know where they found the print for this, but it is pristine. And KL can be some of their, their some of their restorations are a little bit lackluster. This looks great. The, it feels like a real restoration of a, a you know like I said a, a film that for a long for a while was seen as a classic but then just kind of slipped away mm-hmm. and I'm not quite sure why it lost the kind of credibility it did but uh, you know this is you know if you like um dark indies this is a real turning point film for the for the whole genre very interesting film highly recommend watching it at least once even if it doesn't turn out to be your cup of tea Moving on from there, we're going to talk about the latest Blu-ray release of My Left Foot, starring Oscar winner Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, yeah, are you thinking of the Family Guy joke like I am? Oh, Stewie's like, I was in My Left Foot the musical, and it's just him going, My left foot always be better than the right one. <laughs> I didn't know what the movie was about when I saw <laughs> It's it's not a musical. Uh, no, it's about... It's, it's, it's the true story of uh, Christy Brown, who was a who was an Irish writer and painter born with cerebral palsy who could only really control one appendage, and it was his left foot. So he learns to write and paint with his left foot. So this is kind of his story, and it's um, it's a real happy-go-lucky, plucky tale that'll, that'll really lift your spirits and your day. De- no, it's not. It is a story of... Of misery and woe, yes. and as only Daniel Day Lewis could bring us. And of course, Mis- misery and woe in 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 rain swept Ireland. Yeah, you know, I was watching recently uh, reruns of Boardwalk Empire, and uh, Nucky's brother, played by Shea Wiggum, has this line where he's like, "You know, the Irish, we drink when we're happy. We drink, we drink when we're sad, and we're a sorrowful people, so we do a lot of drinking." <laughs> and uh, it's like, yeah, there is just like this is like if you've ever read a Frank McCourt novel or you know, seen any uh, IRA stories, you know, people growing up during the, the the crest of the IRA struggles. That's, that's exactly, I mean, this is so sad. Or as we call them, the troubles. The troubles. Because we love a good euphemism in the UK. Yeah, because <laughs> war is just an unpleasant word. It's it's untoward to say war, so we yes. will call it the troubles. Yeah, this is, this is a very... It's it's a very sad movie, but I, the one the one thing I I do I don't appreciate about it, I don't know if I can really say that because it's a true story, so I don't know if it's like a conscious decision or what really happened, but it it does it does kind of give you some kind of hope that even in this this Irish this poor Irish family where the dad was a raging alcoholic, he never he always loved his kid, he always loved uh, Christy despite his cerebral palsy, whereas you could imagine him being like. Uh, what is this thing? It's no son of mine. Kick him out of the house. Not what happens. He he loves this this kid to the very end. And um, Daniel Day Lewis's performance. I don't know how he manages to play a character with cerebral palsy without it ever feeling cartoony yeah. or you know just like a gimmick. But that's the brilliance of Daniel Day Lewis. He's able to really commit to it. 
And even the young actor who's playing the younger version of Christie is really, I think his, his iteration of Christie kind of does devolve a couple of times into like, okay, scale it down a little bit. Um, but, but Daniel Day Lewis, man, he has earned every bit of his reputation as one of the elite actors in the world because you never disbelieve for a second that he has cerebral palsy. And it's, it's really beautiful the way he learns to communicate. And that's really what the movie's about is learning to communicate against all odds and, and learning to express oneself, even, you know, being trapped behind a disability. And in that way, it's beautiful. You just have to suffer a lot to get there. Yeah. It's, it's not exactly, you know, thrill a minute chirpy stuff, but it's, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, the, in the film that really puts Daniel Day Lewis on the map, it's significant in that way. Uh, it you know it is a masterclass of uh, of a performance. Um, it's not something to put on when you feel like cheering up on a Wednesday afternoon. Uh, no, <laughs> but no, it, it, no, you no. know this is this is you know one of the strongest movie British movies of, of the eighties, and I think it's you know again you know well worth watching. Absolutely, not chirpy, not chirpy at nope, all. Nope, nope. Moving on from there, I'm going to talk about the Criterion release of the week. Very strange film called Palm Beach Story. Now. Criterion is no stranger to putting out uh, classic comedies uh, on, you know, on Blu-ray and in their collection. I mean, we just talked about a few weeks ago, it happened one night. So, you know, they, they don't shy away from the classic black and white comedies. This is one I had never heard of. And after watching it, I can kind of understand why I've never heard of it. It's, it's a very, it's a passable comedy, comedy about a woman who is married to a guy. They're having financial issues. And she decides that the best thing for him is for her to, to run away. So she basically leaves him, but it's not, it's, it's weird. It's like she leaves him for his benefit and he's doing everything he can to, to bring her back. This stars, uh, Joel McRae and Joel, Joel McRae, right? Yep. I was going to like, wait, wait, don't, not, not Joel McHale. Not, nobody confused Joel McHale. I was like, wait a minute. Did I, did I say the wrong one? Cause it's entirely possible that I would say the wrong one. Uh, and Claudette Colbert, uh, who was a very, very big actually in the thirties. Uh, this is a comedy from 1942. And then the third, uh, principle here is Rudy Valley, who again, talking about people who were huge in the thirties. And so as, Miss Jeffers, played by Claudette Colbert, is running from her husband to save him from basically their miserable existence. She she comes across the path of uh, Rudy Valley playing a character named J.D. Hackensacker the <laughs> Third. Yeah, <laughs> basically a take on J.D. Rockefeller. Uh, he is he's rich beyond belief, but he's also he's a very humble man, and he's he's just very happy to meet her and be with her. He keeps. He keeps all the stuff about being rich uh, to himself so much that people like discover who he is throughout the movie. Like, holy shit, that's J.D. Hackensacker the third. Um, and it's it's really just a story about him courting her and her considering marrying him, but still being in love with Joel McRae. And when Joel McRae shows up, then it becomes this farce where she tells everybody that that's her brother and that she's still going to marry J.D. Hackensacker. But uh, her husband, played by Joel McRae, is also trying to get this. This is really bizarre an idea. He's trying to get money to establish an airport that rests on top of a city. It's basically a giant net that sits above the city <laughs> that catches airplanes as they land. It's this bizarre, like, you know, Tomorrowland idea. <laughs> but he, but she uh, decides, Claudette's like, well, I'm going to continue to go on with marrying him so that he will give you the money thinking you're my brother it becomes a farce it absolutely becomes a farce at that point and it's mildly amusing at points but it never 
it never has that transcendent amount of funny. That thing where you watch an old comedy and you're like, wow, this is still funny today. There's, it hasn't lost anything. This has totally lost a lot in the, in the many years of translation. It just doesn't, like, I understand what it wants to do and it does what it's doing very well, but it just feels bland, I think, in a lot of points. And the ending of this film, the ending of this film is the most absurdly deus ex machina thing where it was like, literally, if, if someone would pitch like 10 ridiculous endings, they would have taken the top one. And that's the <laughs> one they used. And it's like, really? That's the solution to the love triangle? Because it feels like a cheat and a half. It feels like your grandmother's sneaking extra 500s when you play Monopoly. Like, it's just, it's an utter cheat. But overall, I think it's, I think it's fine. Like, I know it's kind of a backhanded compliment to pay it uh, at all, but I just, I, I don't think it's one of the I don't think it's one of the best criterions put out, and I'm not even really sure what it is about this movie that I think that it's just purely that it's you know it's it's a later era uh, Claudette Colbert, which you know at a, at a peak she was great. Um, it's Preston Sturgis as both writer and director, um, which kind of you know automatically there's Preston Sturgis credibility there. But the, yeah, I I haven't seen this in years. It doesn't stand out. It also must have been horribly mistimed because you know this comes out in '42, and I don't know how big the uh, American appetite for spoiled rich people. <laughs> Yeah. Having a screwball comedy is, is it's going to be in 1942. So it just really feels like I don't know, this just feels like an oddity, I think. And well, the criterion does put some things out that are oddities, and I think it's got that, but I'm not sure how much further you can go beyond. Well, here's the oddest thing about that. You know what's included as a special feature on this Blu-ray? A better film? So, nice. Safeguarding military information, a 1942 World War II propaganda short written by Sturgis. <laughs> As well as, I will say this, this is pretty interesting. It has an interview with Bill Hader. Really? About Preston Sturgis. That's probably the best thing on here. Yeah, apparently a big Preston Sturgis fan. Uh, There's also the radio adaptation of the film, which I actually do enjoy uh, whenever that exists and they're able to get a hold of it. Uh, I always think that's really interesting. Uh, Interviews with film historians. Uh, It's a new 4K restoration. They do a good job of cleaning it up. I just, you know, since these are so expensive... Honestly, I would yeah. say this is probably a pass. Like, if hmm. you can rent it from your video store to see it and just kind of enjoy it, fine. But, as, as again, as much as these releases cost, I'm going to have to call this a pass. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's going to do it for the releases in total. Oh, wait a minute. No, we still have a lot more. Oh, God. So, to cover them, we are going to... Resu- How are we going to do this? Uh, We're going to resurrect... The Lightning Round! I'm not overly fond of what follows. So, tell me, pray tell, fair Brian, exactly what are the rules and strictures of the lightning round? Well, William Shakespeare, the way this works is that we're going to bounce back and forth some titles here, and each one of us is going to have one minute, and one minute only, to say everything we need to say about these titles that we have deemed... Uh, you know, released, r- released. <laughs> that are, are well, we're well, well capable of of encapsulating in one minute. One minute. So uh, I guess we're going to start. Let me see where we're starting here. We're starting with a movie called Attack of the Morningside Monster. I'll take that. Start the timer, please. And go. Hey, remember how Nicholas Brendan was in a really good film earlier in this podcast? Well, he's in this as well. Uh, this is from the good people over at Unearth Films. Um, 
weird little town. Uh, everybody knows each other. Everybody seemingly has slept with each other at some point or other. Uh, person starts wandering around in weird mask, killing people. There is lots of blood. There are disembowelments. There are things being removed from people's bodies. Uh, there is no plot. There is no purpose. Uh, there's a lot of attempts to come up with some characterization, but everybody's slightly wooden. Uh, Nicholas Brendan, again, the best thing in this, but that's not saying much by comparison to Coherence, which is a far better film and probably shot on a tenth of the budget. Uh, no, this is uh, lower mid-card horror, not super impressive. Uh, kind of has an interesting payoff at the end when you realize like, oh, there's some weird Latin American cult stuff going on. Uh, no. Uh, just just really not to be bothered with unless you're an extreme Nicholas Brendan fan or possibly his lawyer who's trying to build up some more money. Oh, thank you. That was my timer going off to the, hey! to the Knight Rider theme, of course. All right. So from there, I am going to take the reins and go with Fitzcarraldo from 1982. And go. This is actually one of the, uh, the premier collaborations between director Werner Herzog and actor Klaus Kinski. And this story is actually based on the true story of a, a man who wanted to build an opera house in the middle of the jungle in South America. And to do so had to basically, to, to fund it, had to move a bunch of uh, raw materials across the Amazon and decided to haul a steamer across a mountain uh, to get there, to get to a region where nobody else thought they could get to, to mine the... Anyway, that's the plot. What this really is, is it's a movie whose notorious history is every bit as arduous as the actual task of dragging a steamer over the mountain, which, oh, by the way, Werner Herzog actually did for the movie using a bulldozer instead of the actual story, which was that they took the boat apart and reassembled it. And I think that is actually a pretty encapsulating metaphor of what's going on here. Uh, Klaus Kinski is... His performance is, is decent. The movie drags on way too long and focuses, you know, much in the Herzog fashion on little... Stop! Uh, Really? That yep. was it? Holy nah. shit. Thanks, Shout Factory, for putting that up. Yep. <laughs> I wish you had included Burden of Dreams, which is the documentary about the movie. Okay. Wow. Oh, oh actually, uh, if you buy the... Uh, uh, they did a great box set last year, which, if you remember, was my pick of the year release. Yes. Uh, this is in there, and Burden of Dreams is in there. Everything's in there. This is. Why the, wouldn't um, they include that on the... Okay. It's a weirdly mellow Klaus Kinski uh, re- uh, performance, by the way, which is kind of the one... It is thing. very mellow. Yeah, it is very I mellow. liked it. All right. Well, you're back up, Richard, with a movie called Collar. Oh, another one from Unearthed. Uh, hey, do you like rapey, <laughs> rapey Satanist homeless cults? Then <laughs> here comes Carla. Uh, Unearthed put this out last year. Uh, this is a, a new version, which is actually more gruesome, more rapey. Uh, this is real extreme horror stuff uh, about a homeless guy who was molested by a priest as a child and now randomly kills people after kidnapping them in a shed. Uh, he's followed around by by these couple of teenagers who previously were organizing bum fights and now are just randomly killing people, uh, watching him kill people. Um, he kidnaps a cop. Horrible things happen to her. This goes down a really extreme horror route. You'll see a lot. You know, everything you think is going to be gruesome and actually happen happens. Um, the uh, yeah, it's 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 tough stomach uh, territory. They clearly wanted to make a kind of modern version of Maniac and do not pull it off. But you know, it's kind of if you like extreme horror, you like stuff that's so over the top that's going to make you laugh. I think you'll find something in here. But for ninety nine percent of cinema viewers, nope. Fair enough. There we go. All right. Well, I want to jump back on board here for the MythBusters tenth anniversary collection. And go. Uh, hey kids, do you like Mythbusters? Here's a bunch of it. Is that it? That's it. Oh, we're good. I'm sorry, it's basically the way it breaks down is there's ten discs, five episodes per disc, and each of the cast members, uh, Grant, 
Tori, uh, Adam, and Jamie, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the Carrie, uh, each picked their favorite episode. That's it. That's the whole. There's no special Didn't features. They sack most of the supporting cast now. I don't know. Are they all gone? I haven't watched MythBusters in forever since that was the most interesting thing on TV when I got home from class. How would you know that they, 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 these are actually new episodes? They've done so many now. Isn't it like completely moribund? Yeah. 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 But yeah. yeah, so that's what this is. I mean, if you don't already own the individual seasons, sure. Here's a bunch of episodes. Yep. Bye. That's it. Uh, moving on to On Golden Pond. <laughs> Richard, I'm going to start your timer right now. <laughs> this was one of the big films of the 80s. And it's it's an adaptation of a play. It never gets beyond those roots. but what, yeah, And it really feels very stagey in a lot of places. Um, it's most memorable because it's the only time that Henry Fonda and Jane Fonda acted together. Um they play a, a, a father and daughter. Uh, he's a grumpy old academic who's married to Catherine Hepburn. Uh, they have a house on Golden Pond and they're getting old and, you know, uh, Jane Fonda comes up with a new boyfriend uh, played by Corbin Burnson <laughs> in a surprisingly good performance. Um, they drop off their... their uh, uh, his son with them, who's kind of one, is twelve and shouts bullshit a lot, and he bonds with the crotchety, the crotchety old Henry Fonda. Um, loons are an extremely uh, strong metaphor in this, and there's a lot of catfishing. Um, it's it's you know it's a nice little mid card play that you can imagine your community theater doing, but with a great cast. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, now you're on deck again because this wasn't a, a complete fifty fifty split. So I'm going to ask you to talk now for a minute about. White bird in a blizzard. Greg Araki uh, was one of the more, you know, was one of the real founders of queer core cinema in the eighties, um, and is back and has managed to transmogrify from the guy that made Doom Generation, one of the weird, great weird nihilist films of the nineties, into a Todd Solondz tribute act. Um, uh, what's a face for from the uh, inversion or inherence or whatever they are uh, not quite interesting enough to be Hunger Games films uh, plays a girl who uh, her mother is disappears one day the mother played by Eva Green who uh, turns up in uh, flashback sequences and chews the scenery immensely for no good reason and then you know she's like oh my mother's disappeared I'm gonna hang out with my friends and I'm gonna sleep with the kid from next door and nothing happens for a while and then it's kind of okay, and then it turns out there's like even weirder flashbacks that don't really go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, I, I really wanted to like this a lot more, but you know, uh, it's it's really it's it's a very low low on the totem pole piece of Greg Araki, and Greg Araki had you know, he's lost his he's lost his mojo. Sorry. Fair enough. All right. Well, I'm gonna try, and I think a minute's probably gonna be too much time because of what I understand about the movie. Memphis! Hey, and go! All right, so Memphis is a movie about a musician who lives in Memphis. That's the plot. Now, I want to I give you an idea of how, like, over-pretentious and arty this film is just by reading its plot synopsis on IMDb. What I told you is the actual plot. The plot on IMDb, a strange singer with God-given talent drifts through his adopted city of Memphis with its canopy of ancient oak trees. Yeah, that flowery flourish right there is everything you need to know about this movie. There's nothing going on. It shoots in this faux documentary style that I don't know if it was inspired by the the, the experiment that at the time wouldn't have been released, but the experiment of boyhood, I don't know. But everything is shot as if it's a documentary, even though it's not. And the problem I have here is that not only does nothing happen, not only is there nothing profound about it, 
But Kino Lorber, once again, refuses to put subtitles in a movie, and you have characters speaking into old, bad microphones and mumbling, and I can't understand a fucking thing they're saying. And honestly, there's just, there's a lot of art, there's a lot of great cinematography, but to what end? I still don't understand. And we're done. Uh, if you want to see something that does something very similar, there's a great kind of fictionalized documentary called Chop Toolist, which is set in New Orleans, which does the kind of the mystical South thing a lot better. Fair enough. There we go. All right, you're up for the last one in the lightning round with hey. Life's a Breeze. Like we breezed through this lightning round. Oh, Italian, uh, Irish comedies. Uh, adorable old lady who's crotchety and lives in a horrible house with her slightly annoying uh, offspring. Uh, they decide they're going to clean the house up one day and they throw her mattress out, which she then tells them had a million euros in it. And they go, oh, and they decide that they're going to do hilarious Irish family comedy stuff uh, including a lot of traipsing around uh, on um, uh, trash heaps trying to find it and then the entirety of Ireland discovers that it's there and it's oh it's a hilarious romp and it's it's just not it's not that funny it's very by the numbers the best thing about it is actually the the actress who plays uh, the teen granddaughter who's the only one who seems to have some sense of like this entire family are horrible Irish stereotypes um, that Irish cinema has loved doing in recent years not inspiring but she's really good in it and you know like uh if a pleasant way to to find a film that if your granny likes and you want to sit something through something with her that's kind of got a bit of a a moral about it it, probably this uh beyond that no selling points all right that was the lightning round we did it we should do this more often we should do it all the the time every time yep anyway we're gonna move on to the last title which is gonna be our Okay, this is a movie called Once Upon a Time in Shanghai. This is a... This is a, a Western? It, it's not quite a Western. It's an action crime film about a laborer who moves to Shanghai but ends up using his kung fu skills to survive. Oh, so it's it's very much a martial arts that film. Directed by the guy who made Revenge a Love Story, which didn't that play fantastic for It us? did, and is extremely horrible. And there very, you go. But really good. Not <laughs> This is probably... <laughs> Hopefully this is a bit of a cha- a bit of a, a change in tone because I that guess was not a that selling was, point. That was very bleak. <laughs> this yeah, this no, this is much more of an upbeat action film, and we have a Blu-ray copy to give away. Ooh. And here's Richard to tell you how you can win yourself a copy of Once Upon a Time in Shanghai. Okay, the first thing you need to do is you need to get your ass onto Twitter. Get your ass to the Twitter. Um, follow us on um, at one of us dot net. No, uh, at- sort of one of us net. There you go. Uh, says he being an idiot. <laughs> one of us net. <laughs> Uh, use the hashtag uh, Shanghai Giveaway, and we need you to answer this question. There have been a lot of films uh, which ha- use the uh, Once Upon a Time in the... In China, in America, in the West, you name it. You name it. <laughs> Strensel. Um, don't know where that is. It's, you don't want to. Um, where would be the worst place to have a... Once Upon a Time in Ooh. film. So basically all they have to do is write Once Upon a Time in and fill in the blank with the worst place. With they the could worst possible place to set a, a moody uh, you know, state of the nation kind of film, which is what these always are. They're like supposed to be a slice of, of time and place in this particular location. So where would be the worst possible place to, to make a film that anybody would care about? You know what, Richard? I like it. 
Yeah. And I like you. Aww. So I'm going to end this show because I feel like even though we ran through a lightning round, I think we've still been on for almost two hours. Hey! And it is well past time for us to uh, uh, put the show. Past, past bedtime for the show. So I want to remind you yet again, you can get us on iTunes. You can get us on Stitcher. You can follow the show at DigiNoiseCast. You can follow the website at One of OneOfUsNet. You can follow us individually. I'm at BryGuySalisbury. I'm at YorkshireTX. And, of course, you can find Richard over at AustinChronicle.com as well. And I just want to remind you guys, I'm also now doing written reviews on FlickChart.com slash blog, so, which is the blog component of FlickChart, if you hadn't figured that out. Um, so check that out and definitely use those Amazon links. Make sure to think about becoming a subscriber if you haven't already. And just get out there and tell your friends about us. You know, the Podcast Awards are coming up. Yeah. I just want to point that out. www.podcastawards.com. I think entertainment, people's choice, film, you know, whatever. I think I think we could fit into a lot of categories. Sex line. Sex line. And then the individual podcasts all have their own landing page. So feel free to use that as the URL that they ask you for. And if you have any trouble with that, let us know. We'd be glad to help you vote for us. (laughs) Because we have no scruples. We are unscrupulous. Principles. Principles. Any of that nonsense. Principles are for high schools. And we're not in high school anymore. So You can't restrain us, kids. That's right. That's right. Uh, So, yeah, make sure to check all that out, to do all that. And until next time, I'm going to end the show, as I always do, reminding you, no release is too big, no release is too small, from Criterion to Catastrophe. And, oh, God, we covered everything today. We review them all. Oh, shit. (laughs) Did you forget to record? No, no, it's it's recording. I just forgot to open the document so I know what I'm saying after. So I'll just edit all this out. Give me just a second. It's the professionalism they come back for. <laughs> and this we'll put at the end of the episode. Yes. <laughs> this, is, this is those bonus features we always promise. Yep, there you Yay. go. It's an Easter egg. Yay!